If you've ever been in my office, you know that I have a display of different baseballs, autographed. I've got a lot of Braves baseballs because I'm an avid Braves fan. I do have Cardinals baseballs, not necessarily because I'm a Cardinals fan, but uh, because Mandy grew up in St. Louis, and uh, when her brother was 16 months old, he had uh, meningitis and lost his hearing. And uh, as he got older, he wanted to play baseball, and um, so there wasn't uh, a really a good league for him to play in. Large uh, deaf population there because of the school. That's how they ended up there. And so her dad and some leaders in the church started a baseball camp at their church. And every year, Braves players and coaches would come to this camp. And so her dad had tons of baseballs signed uh, by, did I say Braves? Cardinals. Well, that's because the Braves is the better team. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. Cardinals players came, and uh, so I've got several Cardinals balls uh, signed that he gave to me as a wedding gift when we got uh, married, and, uh, but I did not bring one of those in here, but uh, that, that just kind of gives you the story of how I collected a lot of these, um, and they're a conversation piece. They're, they're fun to talk about. Uh, you know, sometimes when people come to see me in my office, it's about really serious matters, and so that kind of breaks the ice, right? And it's something uh, to talk about. And they're, pos- they're prized possessions. I-, I have some good ones. I've got a signed Hank Aaron ball. I've got Phil Necro. I've got uh, Bobby Cox. I've got uh, Greg Maddox. I've got Chipper Jones. Uh, and I brought here probably my favorite Braves player of all time, John Smoltz. I love John Smoltz. I, 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 <laughs> I enjoyed watching him pitch. And uh, Timmy, when he didn't get the number that he wanted this year for baseball, he was searching for a number. I said, it's got to be 29. That's got to be, this is, he's, he is one of, one of my favorites. And so I brought my John Smoltz baseball. Now notice that it is enclosed. Right? It's, I've got a card here as well. I keep this on my shelf, and I don't take it out uh, for any reason. I just keep it there because it's, it's, it's safer there. You know, it's not going to get messed up. It's not going to get dirty. I also brought another baseball. This is one that Timmy practices with, and you can see that it's seen its better days. The stitching's coming out. I mean, it's, it's just been around the block a few times. Now, I don't keep this on a shelf. I don't keep this enclosed in, in because it, the purpose of this is to practice with and get dirty. And, you know, the value of these two is very different, at least sentimentally, right? And, and how we value something determines how we treat it, the commitment that we have to it. I'm not going to go, I mean, if this got lost today, we've got a bucket full of balls at home. You know, it's not... I, I'm not, I'm not going to go a long way to protect this. How much we value something determines our commitment to it. That's true of the things that we own, and that's true of our lives, how we live our lives. How we value something or someone will determine the commitment that we have to that thing or that person. And it's true of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. How, however much we value Christ and what he means to us, what he means in our lives will determine our commitment to him. This series that we're in, we've been in it for a few weeks now, taking it to the streets, a series through the book of James. James is the gospel with shoes on. It is faith and action 
The basis for our series is this. Faith that is real works practically in a person's life. True faith is faith that works. We're not saved by works, but if we truly have faith in Christ, it will be seen in our works as we live out our faith in Christ. Now, this morning we're going to talk about the rebellious spirit. Rebellion exists in our society, and that's stating the obvious, right? You just look around, uh, prisons are overcrowded. We hear stories of teenagers running away from home. We see rebellion in so many different areas. Marriages are breaking up. Uh, I mean, all of these are forms of rebellion, and we see example after example after example in our lives. Rebellion, plain and simple, is a result of sin. It's a result of sin, the, the existence of sin, people committing sin. Rebellion is choosing to do something. Here's the definition. Rebellion is choosing to do something that I want to do instead of doing something that I should do. Um, it's behaving in a selfish way as opposed to doing something that is not just good for me, but good for everyone. It's doing, doing the things that I want instead of the things that I should. It's the desire in all of us, some more than others, to resist conforming, to buck the system. That's rebellion. It's the opposite of humility, which leads to spirituality, to being a mature Christian, to authentic Faith, it can mean the difference between fake spirituality and true spirituality. We're going to look at what that means this morning. And James uh, ends chapter 1 by telling us what true spirituality is as opposed to a rebellious, abrasive attitude or abrasive behavior. Now, uh, this week we have two verses, James 1, 26 and 27. Do I have a volunteer that's willing and ready to step up? I'm looking in Dave's direction. Uh, Dave, why don't you come up? Will you hand me the microphone, Mandy? The, okay, well, all right, take it off the screen. Not that you, uh, it's all good. Not that Dave would cheat. Listen, Dave, Dave knows the whole chapter. I know this. Um, and and uh, so just, I mean, not that he wants to be recognized, but the, he's just doing two verses this morning, but I happen to know that he knows the entire chapter. But Dave, thank you for stepping up I'll this morning. forget these two verses now. Yeah, yeah, the, no pressure, no pressure, right? Yeah. Is yeah. there a baseball on the line for that? I, you know, <laughs> I made a mistake giving Kirk McCauley a gift the first week. I'll, I'll hook you guys up because I, I think I owe Dan something too, but no, you can't have my Smoltz baseball. You can have the practice the ball Cardinals if you'd ball. like that. The Cardinals balls are the yeah, ones I'm I, I could probably hook you up with one. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, if anyone among you thinks you uh, are religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Thank you, David. Thanks. Dave is a big Cardinals fan. We go back and forth. We joke, uh, but I might could hook him up with a Cardinals ball, maybe some random player. I don't know. We'll see. No, it's all good. Thank you. All right, so rebellion. What is, what is rebellion? What, more importantly, what is true spirituality? What is authentic faith? Well, James is going to give us some truths about true spirituality that we need to take with us this morning, I believe. And the first is this, from these two verses. The presumption of spirituality deters an authentic faith. The presumption, presuming to be spiritual, deters an authentic faith. Don't just assume 
that you're spiritual. You know, don't go around, I'm not trying to create doubt, but don't, don't presume that you're spiritual. Know what that really means. A lot of folks think they're spiritual, but they're really pretending. They're really just going through the motions. We know that we're not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. We talked about that last week, so what does that mean? Uh, we know we are to do the word, right? But, but it's not just the doing. It's not, you know, James follows this up intentionally. All of this fits together. It's not, you know, don't get so caught up in the doing that you forget about what a relationship with Christ is really about. Um, we, we have to be careful not to just get in the habit of doing and forget what it means or, or allow it to just become routine or ritual in our lives. He tells us, James does, a man who cannot control his tongue, his speech, is simply religious. Now that word religious really carries the idea, it's talking about expressions of religion like prayers or worship, the act of worship, singing, uh, with no depth. No authentic faith, just going through the motions of those things, just praying prayers, you know, going through the routine of singing, but no depth, no authentic faith behind it. For this person, spirituality is more about ritual. It's not intentional. It's not motivated by true love uh, for Christ. Now, we tend to do this. Uh, we tend, you know, we know the right things to say, the Christian lingo. We, we know the words to say. We even know the things to do, but if we're not careful, we fall into this pattern of just doing and not thinking about why we're doing, not focusing on our relationship with Christ to where the things that we do are an overflow of what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. If we're against the right things, you know, drugs, social issues, then we're considered Christian. If, if, we, are, if we carry a Bible to church, then we're considered Christian. Especially if we give to the church, we're considered Christian. If we go to connection groups, if we attend every week, all of those vitally important to a healthy walk with Christ, but if we, we, we kind of fall into the pattern, hey, I'm checking these things off my list, it's just a box that I check, I've done all of these things, we look at people who do all of these things, say all of the right things, are for all the right things, against the right things, and they have to be Christian, right? They profess it, so they have to be. But it is easy to fall into the pattern of just doing those things. Pure behavior, pure authentic faith, comes from a changed heart. It comes from a heart that has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ through salvation. We don't have to wonder what Jesus thinks about the type of religion that James is talking about. We see in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 7, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, which they were supposed to do, but they're Jesus is making a point here. Keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining clothes. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples living live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonial, ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. 
You know, pure religion has nothing to do with ceremonies, temples, or special days. Now, this is a special day. I mean, we, we got to experience the joy of child dedication. And that's a, that's a special thing. Um, and and we, it's a special day because we're here to worship. Next week is a special day. It is Palm Sunday. The following week certainly is a special day because it's Easter. But true, authentic faith really has nothing to do with what day of the week it is. You can go through the motions. You can do all of those things. True, authentic faith has to do with a transformed heart and an expression of a relationship with Christ. You know, it's really the difference between perception and perspective. And here, here's, here's what I'm talking about. Um, there, an example of what I'm talking about. Sunday is the busiest fast food day of the week. If you look at restaurants, if you talk to restaurant owners, it is their most profitable day. And we all probably, many of us, are going to go eat somewhere after church today. It's the busiest day of the week. Now, in 2019, this was the most recent stats I could find, Chick-fil-A was the second highest grossing fast food chain in the United States. They had leapfrogged. They were number four, I think, and they jumped over the other two, which was Taco Bell and I can't remember who else, Burger King. Uh, so they, they leapfrogged to second place, and they, they had a 13% sales growth to more than $11 billion in 2019 altogether. According to data from Restaurant Business Magazine, this is from their list of 500 restaurants, they had achieved a second place rating. Now what's amazing, two things that are amazing about Chick-fil-A. Number one, they just have just over 2,500 stores. Now, can anybody guess who the top-rated fast food chain is? McDonald's. Guess how many stores they have? Over 14,000. Their first place, 14,000 stores, Chick-fil-A is second with 2,500, over, just over 2,500 stores as of this, this article. Now, the second thing that's amazing, Sunday's the busiest day, right? Chick-fil-A's closed on Sundays. Now, that's amazing. They earn, the, the key to their success is that they earn more per store than McDonald's. Their average earnings per store is $4 million. The average earnings for McDonald's per store is right around $2.5 million. So that just shows you how they do what they do, at least one way. Now, this is what I'm talking about, the difference between perception and perspective. The perception is, is to be successful as a fast food chain, you've got to be open on Sunday. The right perspective is, love God, obey his word, and he will bless you so that you can have a greater platform to testify to who he is. That's as it relates to Chick-fil-A. Now for us, perception, what we're talking about, pure religion means I do all the right things. That's the perception that we have. Check off all the boxes. But the right perspective is pure religion means practicing God's word and sharing it with others. It is, that's my motivation. It's exalting Christ. It is sharing him with others. And that's part of what we do here right now. Next week we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And that's certainly part of what we do with the Lord's Supper. If we're not careful... We're, next, next week's going to be a great, unique service. We're, gonna, we're changing things up. Ben and I have been working on that. We're gonna, it's going to be a special service, and the reason we are doing that is to highlight the significance. We don't ever want that to become routine. 
Because if we're not careful, it can be. That's why we don't do it scheduled by, uh, by the calendar. We do it different every year because I don't ever want it to be routine. The significance behind it. What it represents is a remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross, giving his life for our sins. It is proclaiming the gospel. It is a visual sermon to anybody who witnesses it, that Jesus died for sins and that all can be saved. It is so much more than just taking a stale cracker and drinking a sip of juice. Those represent so much more, those things. They're symbolic. Of, of all of that, and we're going to talk about that next week, but that's just one example of how, if we're not careful, the things that we do can become routine and ritual, and we forget about what it's really all about, and it's about relationship, not religion. Authentic faith that comes from a transformed heart, not things that we go through to check a box just so that we feel good about ourselves and we can say that we are Christian. James, in using the words that he does, he's using speech as an example, but that word that he uses represents so much more. It represents really everything that we do that can become ritualistic as followers of Christ. We, we shouldn't we, we shouldn't ever fall into that trap, that habit. The presumption of spirituality deters an authentic faith. Next, the quality of our language reveals the quality of our faith. James does zero in on speech here because speech is so very important. There are a lot of references to speech in this letter. It makes you think that speech was a serious problem for these believers. And he was addressing that because it was an issue it was causing great havoc in the church. The, this religious man he's talking about has a, in verse 26, has a tongue that needs to be controlled. And that word for control is talking about consistent control of speech. The New American Standard uses the word bridle. The, the King James uses tight rein. The idea is keeping control of a horse. And what he's saying here, he's using the analogy, a loose tongue is like a runaway horse. That can, it can cause a lot of problems. It can cause great damage. It causes all sorts of peop, uh, trouble for people that might be in that horse's path. Uh, and so the idea is that if the tongue is not controlled, it can cause a lot of damage. Uh, constant criticism, foul language. These are examples of using the tongue in an improper way, a damaging way, using speech that does not honor God. It doesn't have to even be vulgar speech, but speech that doesn't honor God. And there are actually people who consider themselves religious or spiritual, but who have no control over their language. They have no control over their tongue. And James calls this type of spirituality useless or futile. It's an exercise in futility. So why does he say this? Well, the reason is because what we say reveals what's in our hearts. What's inside inevitably comes out. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So here's something to take away from this. A true test of a man's spirituality is not his ability to speak, but rather his ability to control his tongue. 
Yeah, I can, you, you can, I can gain knowledge and, and, and learn all of the right things to say, the right lingo, spiritual things. I can even have a knowledge of God's Word and teach God's Word. But if I can't control my tongue, if I can't control the things that I say, and my language hurts people, then that's, that, that's what I know and what I say that's good really is negated by that, even worse. The bad outweighs the good. And, and the truth here that James is, is communicating, that Jesus communicates in Matthew, is that the tongue will, ne- will inevitably show what's in the heart, especially under stress. You know, I joke, but a good test of this, you, if you're working on something with a hammer and you smack your finger, what's inside is going to come out, Right? And we all have bad moments, you know. I'm not saying that if anything bad's ever come out that you're a horrible person. But, but eventually what's inside is going to come out. That's just, you can't keep it hidden forever, especially under stress. Those things come out. If the heart is right, the speech will be right, is the point. A lot of things come out of a person's mouth. Sometimes it's the filth that James talks about in verse 21 previously. Lying, gossip, foul language. All these are symptoms of a heart disease. A heart that is not right. A controlled tongue comes from a spirit, a body that is controlled by Christ. I can't control my tongue. You can't control your tongue. But Christ can. It's about living in submission to Christ. If it's controlled by him, then what comes out will reflect who he is and what he's doing in my life. A heart that is being transformed will will be reflected in a person's actions, but also in a person's speech. It's an expression of purity. True religion controls the tongue. True authentic faith controls the tongue because that person and that person's speech is being controlled by Christ. We should evaluate our speech, all of us, because we all fail in this area at some time or another. We should all evaluate our speech. Is it honoring to God? Is it building others up? Is it exalting Him? Is it in agreement with what we profess to believe about Him? Is my speech honoring to God? Does it show that my heart is being transformed by Him? The quality quality of our language will reveal the quality of our faith. And third, the quality of our faith motivates the purity of our ministry. The quality of our faith motivates the purity of our ministry. Now, James' Jewish readers were prone to mix religious ritual with Christianity. They were having a hard time, you know, under the new covenant, separating what, what is, is no longer necessary from the old covenant, the Jewish practices that, that were no longer uh, required. And so they, they, were, they were mixing it all together. They were having a hard time separating the two. Jewish practices that were voided by the, the, the new covenant. They were now just not necessary because of what Christ did on the cross, his death and his resurrection. They measured their spirituality by how well and whether or not they performed these rituals. And if other people, Gentiles, for example, came into the faith and didn't perform these rituals, then they weren't truly considered Christian. And so there was all of this confusion about what to do. And James says that pure religion involves things like looking after orphans and widows. That's why he goes to this in verse 27. Why orphans and widows? Well, those were the most helpless of society in this day. I mean, there were were no individuals lower than widows and orphans in this day and time. Women were considered property, for one. They had no rights. They couldn't own property. 
if their husband died, they were left to fend for themselves. And they, they, they had no means to take care of themselves unless someone in their family or someone was kind enough to help them. And orphans were, I mean, children were considered insignificant. That's why that whole section uh, where Jesus says, suffer the little children, let them come to me, because it was unheard of for children to have uh, a place of importance enough to distract or hinder, uh, to bother a teacher like Jesus, someone who was considered uh, a rabbi, who was considered his position, certainly the Messiah. I mean, the disciples thought, hey, we can't let this happen. These children, they're insignificant, right? And, And so women and children were considered insignificant in and of themselves under normal circumstances. Orphans and widows were a step below that. I mean, there were, there was no social security and there were no retirement plans, really. I mean, you know, there were no Baptist children's homes for orphans. They, there was just, that was the, the most hopeless position you could be. And so when James says this, this strikes a chord. It, it makes them ask, do I really love Jesus? Because if I love Jesus, I'm going to care for these people that everybody else has cast aside. And there are certainly those people in our society, right, that have been cast aside, that are considered insignificant, unimportant, not worthy of our time, hopeless. You know, they, they won't even bother to help themselves. You know, we could fill in the blanks of different, different people, different groups, different individuals maybe even that pop into our heads. There are always, has always been and will always been be people in society that we consider outcasts. And what James is saying here is if you truly love Jesus, if you truly have an authentic faith, then you are going to care for those that everybody else has cast aside, that everybody else has written off. Do we really love those who are hard to love? Are we willing to help those who are helpless, who can't help themselves? That's what he's asking here. That's what he's saying. Um. Yeah, after we see, you know, we talked about the mirror of God's word and what that means. We look into the mirror of God's word and we see ourselves as we really are. Then we see God as he really is. But what happens next is we begin to see others the same way Jesus sees them. As people who are loved by him. As people who are valuable to him. He died for those people just like he died for me and he died for you. He loves his children. He loves his people, his creation, and we begin to see them the same way through his eyes, from his heart. Um, In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah first saw the Lord, right, in the presence of God, we're in the presence of God in his word, then he saw himself as he really was, woe is me, I'm undone, but then what did he do next? He saw the people, and, and he was willing to step up and serve God's people. And the same should happen with us. You know, words are not substitutes for acts of love. We can say it, we can, we can do all the right things, say all the right things, but we have to be willing to take the step and act. You know, God doesn't want us to pray for others to minister as a substitute for our ministry. Right? We need to be willing, just like Isaiah, here I am, send me. Are we willing? to be the ones, the hands and feet of Jesus. Religious practices like singing, serving on a committee, going to Sunday school, even the Lord's Supper that we're going to do next week, no matter how perfectly we observe them or how appropriately they are done, they are empty if there's no concern for people in need that Jesus wants to to touch and to experience his love. 
You know, we can have the greatest worship service in the state, and we have a great one here. Our, ben, our worship team, the choir, they do a fantastic job every week. We can have the greatest worship service. We can have the most fantastic ministries in the city, beyond. We can have all these things. But those things, if we ignore the helpless, our worship is ashes at the altar, at the feet of Jesus. It means nothing. There's a picture. This is a statue in London, the center of Piccadilly Circus. It's the statue of Eros, the Greek god of love, and it's in the form of Cupid with a bow and arrow. And most people think that it is a monument to romantic human love, but they're wrong. That's not what this statue represents. It's actually a statue honoring great Christian, the great Christian uh, uh, coastal reformer, Lord Shaftesbury. And it, and it represents his Christian eros, love for humankind, for mankind. And, and what happened, it was, even though it was somewhat of a brief period, because of this, because of his passion for the Lord, he revived the people around him. Uh, there was a revival that took place. And, and, and it was to the Christian's responsibility to meet the needs of those who were in need. You know, we're not talking about you know, social justice and social reform just for the sake of you know, trying to fix something that's broken, trying to deal with the symptoms. We're talking about you know, our love for Christ and how that motivates us to meet the needs of those who are in desperate need. And that's what this was all about. That's, that's what he stood for. And because he passionately lived that out, he affected the people around him who caught fire and, and, and caught a passion for the same thing. True religion, religion that God accepts, cannot exist apart from caring for orphans and widows, people in need, people who have, no, have been cast aside by society. John said this, he said it well, when he said, if anyone in this has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let, let us not... Love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. I mean, the Bible's consistent in this. Pure Christianity involves ministering to those in need. Pure Christianity also involves character. We're told to keep ourselves from being unstained or polluted by James, which means to be without any evidence of the world's impurities in us. We are not to be stained by the world, the culture, and by the world, James is talking about a society without God. That's what that means. Satan is the ruler of this world. We see that in John 14, 30. The lost are considered children of this world, Luke 16, 8. And as children of God, we are in the world physically and to be in the world, but we're not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been changed. We've been transformed. Look at how Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. But we are sent into the world to win others to Christ. Look at verse 18 of that same chapter. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. We can only effectively serve others when we maintain a spiritual separation from the world. Key word is spiritual, spiritual separation from the world. The world wants to stain Christians. Satan wants us to conform to the world. 
And here's how this develops. First, there's friendship with the world. We jump ahead to chapter 4 of James, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And this leads to a love for the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Then, if we're not careful, we'll become conformed to this world. Romans 12 is all about that. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, accept, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. I love, I believe it's the Phillips paraphrase that says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your heart, renewing of your heart, your mind, the person, the inner person who you are, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we do conform, uh, Paul's warning us not to, James is too, but if we do conform, the result will be that we are judged by God, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. The best way... To minister to the needs of the world like James is calling us to do here. God is calling us to do is to maintain purity while in the world. To be a light that shines in the darkness. This involves habits. Uh, When we're not in the world, what we watch, what we read, what we take in, what we allow ourselves to be exposed to, the places that we go, the company that we keep. Most importantly, this requires a close intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't have purity without transformation that comes through salvation that can only be offered by Jesus Christ. Most most individuals, again, or a lot of individuals think it's about doing the right things. And mo- a lot of people read James and think, well, hey, I, yeah, he agrees with that. I mean, he, he's talking about works. He's talking about doing. So I've got to do to be holy. No, James is talking about doing works that come from holiness that's already there. Transformation, sanctification, the process of being sanctified, justification that leads to sanctification. I mean, he's talking about the overflow of what's on the inside. As we go through the world, we have to walk in communion with God. We have to stay connected, uh, having fellowship with him. You know, a good way to understand communion with God, praying without ceasing, which is the next step. You know, we we walk in fellowship with him every day. That's communion. We are in, in relationship with him. And then we pray without ceasing which the Bible tells us to do. And that doesn't mean we're walking around all the time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. For one thing, you're going to run into something or somebody. But what it does mean is that I'm communion and praying without ceasing is that I'm constantly aware of God's presence in my life, that I'm constantly aware that he's there. I'm constantly listening to his still, small voice, and it's an ongoing conversation. You know, I have communion with my wife. Do we talk all the time, nonstop? No, we don't. 
but we, we have conversations, but when we're together, we're constantly aware of each other's presence. And the longer you're married, the more your spouse can read your mind, right? But, but that's, that, there's something to that, right? I mean, she can anticipate a lot of times what I'm saying, and she knows when things aren't right with me. Sometimes it drives me crazy because I don't want to talk about it. But she, she knows me. She knows me better than anybody. I can't tell you how many times I finally got to a point where I'm ready to talk about whatever's bothering me, and she's like, well, I already knew, you know. <laughs> I'm glad you're talking to me about it. But it's that ongoing communion. We, we can anticipate each other's needs. We know what's going on just by being in each other's presence. We sense that in each other. We learn, we're learning each other. And, and that's, that's what a relationship with Christ should look like. That we are so close to him. We're so used to walking in his presence that I know, I know what God's thinking. I know the mind of God. That's one of the great benefits of being a child of God. I can know the mind of God, what he wants, what he thinks. And he certainly knows me better than I know myself. But it's really, it is about being known by God and experiencing the joy of being known by God. But he already knows me. For me and my growth, it's learning who he is, anticipating what he's going to do so that I can join him in that, knowing what he's saying. And again, that still small voice that is so very difficult, impossible to hear if you're being conformed by the world, if your mind and your heart's being clouded by all sorts of impurities. And James is showing us the importance of that. But let's make a distinction here, and this is an important distinction. Don't check out before you hear this, okay? Don't start thinking about whatever fast food restaurant you're going to go to in a few minutes. Because this is so very important. There's a distinction that we need to make. Being separated from the world spiritually does not mean being separated from the world physically. Be in the world. Not of the world, but yes, we are to be in the world. And that means we're going to have to be willing to get our hands dirty. If we're going to meet, put it all together. We're separate spiritually. We're separate in our relationship with Christ, in our holiness, in our sanctification. And we're called, set apart. But we are in the world, the hands and feet. We have to be willing to get our hands dirty if we're going to meet the, the, the needs of those orphans and widows. And listen, I, I love being a parent of adoption. And it is something that we've been called to as a family. And, and Eli is my son, 100%. I love him uh, with all that I am. But one thing that I've learned through the process of adoption is that it can at times be incredibly difficult. And, and it is not, and there are parts of it that because, you know, God's design for the family is perfect. Husband, wife, man, woman, procreating, having children, and whenever that gets broken, it creates fallout, and it creates difficulty. It is beautiful in so many ways, but we see the brokenness that exists through that, and we're going to see that in our world. If we get out there, we're going to get our hands dirty, and it's going to be ugly at times, and it's going to be painful at times, and it's going to be difficult at times, but we've got to be willing to get out there and do it. Now, I brought a, a paintbrush with me this morning. Several years ago, uh, my dad and I uh, had a little side thing going where we would paint to earn extra money. You know, my family was growing, and the church I was serving at the time, we needed a little bit of extra money, and so dad and I, we would take these little side jobs and paint. 
And here's one thing that I, I, I can tell you about painting. I, I don't want to do it for a living is one thing I've learned. It is tedious for one thing. I mean, it, 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 takes, it takes patience. It takes, you know, skill. It, it takes uh, uh, dedication. And the other thing that I've learned about painting is that if I paint, especially if I paint, you're going to get it all over. You're going to get it on your hands. If you're me, you're a three-coater. Three one on the wall, one on the floor, and one on myself. I mean, when I get done painting, I got it all over me. That's just, that's just me. I can paint, and I do a pretty good job, but I, I mean, I make a mess. But I, even if I don't get it somehow, by some miracle, don't manage to get it on myself, I'm going to get it on my hands. There's no way that I'm going to tape this paintbrush, dip it in paint, start painting a wall or a door or whatever, and not walk away with it on my hands. If I'm going to, be, if I'm going to do the work of painting, I've got to be willing to get my hands dirty. If we're going to do the work of ministering to others, we have got to be willing to get our hands dirty. But here's something else, and why it doesn't bother me that much to get paint on my hands, because you know what I can do? I can wash it off. It may take a little paint thinner, or if I'm desperate, maybe a little gasoline, which I know is not good, but I, you, do, you do what you got to do. I can get the paint off. I can scrub it off. So while my hands get dirty, they're not stained permanently. We'll get our hands dirty, but that doesn't mean we get stained by the world. And that's the difference. In the world, not of the world. Get my hands dirty, but because of the transformation that's taking place, because I'm walking in communion with Christ, I'm praying without ceasing, I've got a fellowship with him, our relationship is strong, I can get my hands dirty without becoming stained. So I'm not conformed to the world. We've got to get out there. We've got to be willing to get our hands dirty. We've got to do the hard work. We've got to be willing to do what it takes to minister to those in need. But we don't just go through the motions on Sunday. We don't go through the motions daily during the week. I've checked off my Bible study. I've checked off my quiet time. I went to church. You remember the envelopes we used to fill out? I brought my Bible. I told somebody about Jesus this week. I did my offering. We're not just checking off lists because if we get into that habit, we're going to get stained by the world. But if we're truly in an authentic spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ, then we can get out there and be his ambassadors. And that ultimately is what James is talking about in this passage. We can get our hands dirty without them becoming stained. We are saved. We are cleansed from sin. We are in the world. We're not of the world. We cannot conform to the world, but we must be willing to go and do the hard work of spreading the gospel and ministering to those in needs. And here is how we do that. We do that by the power of the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives. That is the only way that we can do that. Is my speech honoring to God? Am I going through the motions? Or am I, do I really have an authentic faith, a true relationship with Christ? These are questions we need to ask. These are questions that we need to make sure we need to make sure we've got it right before we step outside these doors and attempt to do the work that God's called us to do. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer. Let me challenge you. You can go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me challenge you. And I'm going to do the same thing. I have been, as, as I've been wrestling with this text, and God's been working through his word to shape me in preparation to share with you what I believe he has for us. Let's just allow, just for the next few minutes, as we pray, and during this time of commitment, just allow the Holy Spirit to do an inventory.
Is our faith authentic? Is it real? And even if it is, listen, we all fall victim to going through the motions at times. I mean, sometimes our lives get so crazy and busy, and I think we all could say that on some level, that that we just kind of go into autopilot, and the things that we do for the Lord just become just an addition to our to-do list. And it's not intentional, and it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person, but it's easy to do. And especially before we go into next week and observe the Lord's Supper, which is a sacred thing. Let's, let's in advance just, to, just do that inventory that we should do every time we come to the Lord's table. We should do it every time we come into his presence. Is my, is my life about ritual? Is my life about doing the right things because it's just what I'm supposed to do? Or is my life an overflow, my actions an overflow of the transformation that has taken place and is taking place in my heart because of my relationship with Christ? Father, we humble ourselves before you in this moment. And we recognize that we are imperfect human beings who we know frustrate you at times because of our tendency to drift, our tendency to fall away, our tendency to allow things in our lives to cloud what we should be doing for you our relationship with you, our focus on growing in that relationship. We live in a busy, fast-paced world, and we all have full schedules. But just because our schedules are full doesn't mean that we can't focus on you and grow in you and walk with you through all of the activities of our day and to be your representatives in that doesn't mean that we can't make time to do the things that you want us to do, to prioritize our lives in a way that honors you, with you at first and you at the center. And Lord, I think that you're calling us in this moment just to evaluate our motives, evaluate the condition of our hearts. You, Holy Spirit, do your inventory. Show us any impurity. Show us anything that is not honoring to you. Show us in this moment how you want us to respond. Give us a a passion and a desire to live in a way that honors you and glorifies your name, exalts your name, advances the gospel. Lord, we we thank you that, that even though we can be frustrating, even though we can drift, even though we make mistakes, you are very clear that we are a work in progress and that you will not give up on us until that work is complete. We thank you for that. That in and of itself is grace and mercy. Lord, help us to respond. Lord, if there's somebody here today who doesn't have that authentic faith, maybe even they've been going through the motions, but they don't have a relationship with you because they've never accepted the gift of salvation that only you offer, only you can offer. Maybe today the the inventory is showing, Holy Spirit, you're showing them that they need to accept you as Lord and Savior. And I pray that they would come during this time of invitation. And allow me to share with them what they need to do next. For the rest of us, Father, who know you, just speak to us in this moment. Help us to respond in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?